And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there. Welcome to the show. Brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. Dan here from The Square Ball with Phil Hay from The Athletic. To read Phil's writings, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to sign up. We've got the offer on there, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. And we'll start there, Phil. Monday edition of the show, reflecting on the weekend's game, two all against Brighton. And the lead off on your piece about this game is to do with what Leeds need to do between now and the end of the season. Five wins, you're saying. How do you reflect on that point against Brighton now then? Somebody summed it up really well in the comments that are under today's piece, where they said it's a good point. And I think that's inarguable. I don't think anybody can pretend that it's not a two-all draw with Brighton isn't a good result. And even more so, having seen them in the flesh on Saturday. Now, there's a lot to talk about with this game, actually, and we, we really should get into the way Brighton play because it was quite quite unique to watch. But they also made the point that it's not necessarily a, a very helpful point, and I, I get where they're coming from with that. It's almost as if we're seeing Leeds move forward tactically under Gracia, and I don't mean in huge steps, and I don't mean dramatically to the extent that they've become a good team overnight because I don't think you could make the case for that. But I do think what we've seen in most of his games so far, and and probably all of them, if we're being fair, is a a tactical brain and some wit when it comes to what you need to do against individual teams and how you need to change and adapt for individual teams. And we've probably never seen that so far more pronounced than against Brighton. I mean, certainly it was the case against Southampton as well. I thought that he, he said after the match, and he'd had very little time to prepare for that for his first game, but he said... Our strategy was to essentially be in the game, make sure we were in the game to wait for our moment because it wasn't going to be one of those that we could just dominate from the outset. And that's exactly how it how it worked out. But against Brighton on Saturday, I led off today's piece, and you tell me what you think about this, but the only game in which I could really draw a comparison to what we saw on, on Saturday, and I'm not insulting Brighton at all because I was really impressed with them. I thought they were very, very good was Yapstam's Reading when they came to Ellen Road in 2016. And I don't know if you remember that night, and I'm only talking defensively here, or or how Reading were deep in possession, but you'll remember the constant lateral passes, the fact that both centre-backs had about 100 touches each that night. I think they had, in the end, 77% possession, Reading. And it was a kind of source of amusement because they went home with a 2-0 defeat. And, you know, that argument of possession as king was kind of blown apart by the lead side, who, who then were, were managed by Gary Monk. But it's very rare these days, and it's almost unique in the Premier League at the moment, to see a side who, like Brighton, are so willing to be as patient as they were at the back when they, they play out from the back, to the point where Webster in particular was almost standing still with the ball on various occasions. And I think the crowd found that quite difficult to cope with, and I understand this, because you it's not what you're used to seeing. and. You know, if you if you look at Brighton closely and if you know about them, if you press them really aggressively, either your press is absolutely perfect and it kills them, or they just cut through you and take you to the cleaners because the passing is extremely good. They've got a lot of talent through that team. And 
I totally understood Gracia's approach of the block being very kind of passive almost, but certainly not being overcommitted and leading to those periods, particularly in the first half, where Brighton were kind of standing still, Leeds were standing still, and nobody really knew what to make of it. You know, everybody was looking for a bit of blood and thunder, and it just felt really odd. And it is odd because you just don't see that very much. But I did think it was the right way to go. The, the problem was always going to be what happens when Brighton score. You know, if Brighton score first, then what? And I think from the point where they opened the score and when McAllister nodded in that header, that's when it started to become really passive. You know, that's when it started to become almost lacking aggression and, and lacking a little bit of direction. And they they badly, badly needed that deflected goal out of nothing from Bamford. And I think if it hadn't been for that, it could have been a really tough and painful afternoon. And I came away feeling like it was a good point. But if we're being fair, I think Leeds were lucky to take it. The comparison with the Reading game really does stand up. I mean, you can tell you've not listened to our match ball podcast because we had this self-same discussion on there. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, it's all right. Our, our colleague, <laughs> Moscow White, um, he mentioned that same game. He just said, obviously, Reading were far inferior to what you see out of Brighton, though, but remembers very, very obvious similarities between the approaches in, in play. And yeah, and it was it was quite not difficult to watch because I understood exactly why we were standing off them and then we were pressing their midfield and forcing them to go like through the midfield beyond that to the attackers, weren't we? And we got loads and loads of turnovers of the ball, but there were times when their centre-backs would have it and you'd see Bamford and Aronson just stand there and you could hear that the Ellen Road grumble just started, didn't it? It's partly because stadiums expect their own teams to be on the front foot and it's not that everybody plays in that style. You know, some some teams do deliberately adopt counter-attacking play and, and do like to concede possession and, and that works for them. I think everybody was caught between totally understanding on the one hand, why Gracia was doing what he was doing. And I think that probably became more apparent as the game went on and you started to realise actually how slick and how good Brighton's passing was and how much of a threat it would carry if you basically opened the door to, to let them do what they wanted to do unimpeded. But also, and it's probably not helped by the fact that you do have this underlying tension of our leads going down. You know, our leads going to get relegated. They need results. They need points. And you you sit and watch them sitting off. And it is that natural urge of thinking, you know, get into them, you know, get into them, press them, press them harder. I strongly suspect that had that game been in the hands of Grassi's predecessor and Leeds had pressed or tried to press in the way that they were previously, I, I think they could have come in for quite a heavy defeat on Saturday because I think they would have been even more open than they were. And let's not pretend that Brighton didn't have a lot of chances. I mean, Welbeck should have killed that at 2-1. And, you know, the context of, of Leeds United, his role in the season, certainly for the last two, seems to be to turn up at Ellen Road, miss a sitter, and let Leeds make a point. You know, that was a, an easy, easy chance. And it did feel in that period as if Leeds were, were starting to starting to lose the way again and, and were starting to compete. And in the end, it took a, a pearl of finish from, from Harrison to get a point out of that. Uh, but, I, yeah, to go back to the crowd... I think it was everybody's first experience of seeing the Zerbys Brighton. We'd seen Potters down at the Amex then back at the start of the season, and they were a very good side in their own right. But they've changed under the Zerby and they've they've moved forward. And I have to say, I mean, he must be saying to his defenders, "Listen, the risks of because the risk, you know, of, of them making errors in the way that they're playing and conceding, I guess, quite unflattering and embarrassing goals, has to be really high with those tactics." But he's clearly saying to them, and I think he's got a, a slight lunatic streak to Zerbi, he's, he's 
quite easy to want to, um, in my view. I think he must be saying to them, I don't care. You know, I don't care if things go wrong at the back and if we make mistakes and if it doesn't work and whatever else, I don't care. That is how you have to play. And it's quite telling as well that he's dropped the goalkeeper Sanchez and, and is playing Steele instead. And the theory behind that seems to be that Steele is just better with his feet. You know, he can cope more easily with that type of possession play than a keeper who's been Brighton's for so long, you know, longer than anybody can remember, really. So I think from a neutral perspective, you have to say they were pretty impressive, Brighton. And it's a little bit difficult not to be envious, actually, about the position they're in at the moment. I thought the football was brilliant. Some of the football they played yeah. um, was excellent. Some and, of the individuals as well. M- yeah, Mitoma. Yeah, exactly the M- same. McAllister I was... as well. McAllister just kind of runs runs the show. Ferguson was sort of quite quietly effective without ever really seeing him, if, if that makes sense. You know, he, he, he just helped to to make things tick. And I also just thought that the the bravery levels they had on the ball were, um, yeah, were, were pretty commendable. And actually, it's nice to see something different being done. You know, it is nice to see. There's been this whole shift from, there's a very good piece in The Guardian actually last week, which people should have a read of, written by um, Jonathan Liu. And he was talking about the shift from the, tiki-taka mentality that was all the rage for you know for so long to pressing and the idea that turnovers and transition is is so important and now you're kind of swinging back to a team who are going further than anybody else at wanting to to retain possession and and to dominate it they're a good side you can see why they they are where they are in the league uh, it was difficult as well from a, a romance point of view to stomach the fact that Deserby was saying nice things about Bielsa in the in the run-up to this he was saying he admired the the style of football that Bielsa played at Leeds and was always uh, he enjoyed watching it and he was looking forward to coming to Ellen Road to uh, to play on the same stage. Well, he he would, and it's not as if the football is identical because it definitely isn't. But there are you know there are similarities and and certainly you know the, the same kind of commitment to possession that Bielsa always had. It was done in different ways, and Leeds could be patient at the back and were patient at the back with Bielsa, but not you know not like that. There, there was always a bit more intensity and, and tempo to the way in which they spread the ball about. But there are a lot of disciples of Bielsa out there. And I think it's always quite nuanced. You know, the bits they've taken from him, the bits they haven't. I, when we were talking about Andoni Iriolo over at um, Rio Vallecano, I was mentioning the fact, you know, that um, when I'd spoken to him for a piece we did on Motherball, he said there are parts of Bielsa's philosophy and ideas that I use but that's not one of them because I don't think my players would want it. You know, I don't think I I have the authority necessarily to be able to say we're going to do this every week in, in the way that Bielsa does. So yeah, you you know, pick up little bits and pieces. But one of the things I like about Deserbi is he, he does seem to be his own man. When it comes to his approach and his plan, it's very, very much his. And I think other people might start to copy it. Just looking at um at their record, you know, they haven't won in five uh, via car. No. Last time they won was 6th of February, so not too long after... Uh... <laughs> After after we did the the auto dance, <laughs> the Leeds effect, the Leeds effect. They're having a good season, aren't they? Um, but it all, even now that it all starts to feel a bit distant, doesn't it? That part oh. of the the managerial chase thing, it feels as if we're, we're a long way on from that already. Well, I was going to say, um, you know, with Bielsa coming up as he frequently does on this show, that um, we've now played twenty six games, and we were just discussing off air, weren't we, before we uh, we started recording this, that we've got exactly the same record after twenty six games this season as we have had last season. Sorry. 23 points, 26 games. Bielsa was sacked, albeit we were in, I think, 15th or 16th at, at that point. Um, but we did have Burnley in that situation with two games in hand on us and Everton were beneath us with a game in hand. So it was looking pretty dicey then. It's just that the, the teams beneath us at the bottom had fewer points. 
Well, the table as a whole is really difficult to compare to last season because of the impact that COVID had. And it, there's no, it, it's so uneven um, in terms of games played at, at this point last year that it doesn't really paint an entirely fair picture. I think that tells you two things. Um, the, the comparison with where Bielsa was at when he got sacked. The first is that they have picked up points on the grass here because they were not in line when um, Marsh was sacked with the same position 12 months earlier. You know, they picked up fewer points from the number of games that they played. And we were chatting about this over the weekend saying, you know, the, the points per game under Gracia at the moment um, would take them to 39, 38, 39 at the end of the season. It's a, it, it's a small sample to go on so far because he's only had three games, but you know, that's the sort of rate that they're, they're going to go at the table though. I mean, I, I would, I would challenge anybody at the moment to predict who is finishing bottom three because every time you think that Bournemouth are slipping away, they turn up a win against Liverpool. Every time you think that Everton have gone backwards again, they put a win on the board. Somebody was saying to me over the weekend, you know, Palace probably not far away from being fine. And I said, yeah, true enough. And then I actually looked at Palace and, and saw that they haven't won a game this year. They haven't won since December the 31st. They haven't had a shot on target in three games. Their, their XG is absolutely dreadful. And they're 100% in it in the same, the same way that everybody else is. And I was sort of saying in this piece today, there are no stragglers this season. There are you know, no totally busted flushes. There's nobody you would say needs putting out of their misery unless you're talking about eight clubs, unless you're putting everybody out of their misery. Our um, fan base. <laughs> <laughs> if you... If you start going around the league, you know, if you go down to Selhurst Park, I don't think I don't think it's milk and honey down there at the moment. Forest interests me actually because, and I only sort of broadly follow the the reaction to what's going on at Forest, but they seem very happy with Cooper and they seem very happy with how this season has gone. And even though they're in the thick of it and they very much are, I think they feel like they're doing okay. I think we'll, since the managerial change there as well, have, have made good progress. Their points per game is about one at one point five. So, and that's over a more sustained period than Gracia to this point. So, I think they'll be quietly confident. But it it's almost impossible as it stands at the moment to say who is in the most the most trouble. And again, with Leeds, I don't feel like Leeds aren't competing. I don't feel like Gracia hasn't made an impact. But the nineteenth, and that's very difficult to get away from. Yeah, just looking at Forest's running and it's not the easiest, is it? Well, Forest, Forest have scored four goals away from home this season and have won one game. But they probably feel like at the city ground, they have what it takes to get the points that they're going to need. I just think that however this pans out and however the table looks at the end, there'll be three clubs who will probably think that it wouldn't have taken much for them to have stayed up. And there'll be a bunch of other clubs who'll be feeling pretty lucky that in the end they've they've done enough because it's probably going to be pretty fine margins. With players coming back from injury, thinking specifically the return of Rodrigo, Bamford got 60, 65 under his belt at the weekend, Sinistera back in contention. If they can keep those players fit and manage them through, does it return to the point you made a few weeks back about Leeds potentially having enough to, to fire their way out of this? Because we were asking where the goals were coming from. We got two at the weekend. Well, it helps. It definitely helps. Um, I mean, Sinistera got all of about 10 seconds in the end. He was stuck on the touchline for about three minutes, wasn't he, while, while Brighton were attacking in injury time. But him back in the picture, Rodrigo back in the picture, it gives some variety and it gives a, a range of, of options. I asked Gracia afterwards about Nonto because, again, that's where the spark came from in the second half. I, I, I think it would be a bit blind to 
ignore the fact that both goals on Saturday, one was a deflected Bamford shot, one was a Harrison hit. Great finish. I mean, no, you know, no knocking that. But it doesn't necessarily point to Leeds. It doesn't point to Leeds finding the the sudden ability to play through through teams and create themselves easy chances that that they can take. Um, I think that's probably what Gracia would like to see more of. But I don't see Rodrigo hurting that at all. Him returning, and I feel like he is probably who they need to have at nine if they can get him fully fit um, quickly. Sinistera might need a while longer to to make a big impact because again he, he got a few a few seconds. But it it's not going to do any harm, is it? The more the more you have to choose from, the the more it helps. And I think the point I was sort of making with Gracia with Nonto was that yes, I, I do understand why he's been taken out of the team. He, he was starting to get double marked. He was starting to get proper attention from teams. He clearly picked him up as a threat. And it can't all be on him. It can't just be him getting flogged to death because nobody else is is particularly providing inspiration. But I think again to to take his substitute appearance on Saturday. Hard not to feel like he is going to be very influential towards the back end of the season or needs to be very influential in that period. Hello there, I'm Ali Maxwell. I'm the host of the Athletic Football Tactics podcast with Michael Cox, Liam Tharm and Mark Kerry. Each week we try and better understand and explain where possible the game that we love and we look at things through a, a tactical and analytical lens. We love a deep dive, we love to myth bust and just generally try and tackle football discussion in a depth and in a way that I don't think you find on many other pods. In recent weeks, we have released a two-part series looking at the state of football management. We've also looked at understanding Red Bull football and how well it travels outside of the Red Bull empire. Join us over on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast feed. Just search for the name of the pod wherever you listen to yours. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Two-pronged question for you now then, Phil. First part is, what did you make of Brendan Aronson's performance at the weekend? And the second part of that question is about the guy that we were just talking about. Would you be tempted to use Willie Nonto rather than coming in from the left? Would you use him as a second striker playing off, be it Rodrigo or Bamford or whoever? First part first. I think we've started to see slightly more influence from Aronson since Gracia has has taken over from Marsh. Not enough where I feel like Aronson could say that he's truly playing well or, or truly being effective. And I think physically, Aronson as a as a runner and you know the, the energy in his game has the, the legs that he needs for the Premier League. But I think there are times where teams do find it a bit too easy to bully him 
And maybe that is something that he's going to have to work on. He is only young still, you know, and maybe that is something that he'll need to need to try and look at and and to improve over the summer to come and and the years ahead. Contrasting him with somebody like Nonto, Nonto has a, a, a kind of physical state that even though he's only eighteen, lets him compete. You know, he is very strong. He's very powerful. He's As not per easy. last week, Phil, he's nineteen. Ah, sorry, yes, yeah, I must, <laughs> I must sort out my birthday cards. Really, yeah, I've obviously, I've obviously missed his. But, he, but he, he is, you know, he's, he's not somebody you can really bully because he, he I think, I think clubs have realised that as well. It's not a case of, perhaps, the exception of Forrest, where they put Ori on him and said, you know, just absolutely smother him. They've, they've tried tactically more and more to just limit the space that he's got, as opposed to, you know, kicking him out of the game. The secondary striker thing, Gracia has talked about that quite a bit because the clearly players at Leeds, and perhaps more than he would like actually, who lend themselves more to being a secondary striker than a nine. So at the press conference last week after the Chelsea game, I asked him about Jorginho Ruta. What do you think of him? What have you made of him so far? To which he said he's young, he needs time, you know, we need to be patient with him. But where is he best? And he said, you know, he can play in a variety of positions, but interestingly, didn't think that nine was really one of them unless needs must. And that's what happened at Chelsea. You know, he shot of options, shot of bodies. So in the end, he tried rooted up front. But he was implying that really he would rather he played as a secondary striker or played out wide. And I got the impression that he was really saying, actually, as part of a front two, that might be best for him. And perhaps it, it would. Just to this point, even though... Sometimes when leads are quite fluid, it can almost look like they've got two up front. It hasn't felt as if Grassi's wanted to go down that route, you know, as uh, to the point of having an out and out front two in a four four two or the kind of four two 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 that he used at, at Watford. But I could certainly see how it would work with Nonto. The thing I like about Nonto is the variation of his position positioning, the runs from deep, his ability just to influence play and, and increase the 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 pace of of the performance as well. It's it's so good. I think he definitely has an effect out wide without any question. But I, I do think the talent in him means that he could have an effect in the centre too. Do you feel like the game shifted a little bit more? We got more momentum, more wind in the yeah. sails after he came on? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's just little things like winning the corner that led to Harrison's goal. And it's one of those where it's hard to say that the, the corner was responsible for the goal entirely because it was one of those hits that you know, without being unkind to Harrison, he is not in great form at the minute. It's one of those days again on Saturday where up until the um, you know the goal itself is a bit a little bit like can't do right for for doing wrong. But nine times out of ten, that probably goes over the bar from most players. On that occasion, it goes in the top corner. But that chance isn't there to be hit unless Nonto persists to win a corner. Which if he's not really pulling a leg or if he's not really chasing that ball. They don't win, you know, and, and that's what I think you get from him. You get a lot of energy, you get a lot of effort, there's the skill there as well. And and you know, as I said, it can't just be flog him till he drops. There has to be an impact coming from other players too. But he almost feels a little bit too influential to leave out. I'm not comparing him to Rafinha, but there was obviously the period briefly then before Bielsa went last season where you know, Bielsa had substituted Rafinha at half-time at Everton and then had left him on the bench for the Manchester United game that they lost at Ellen Road. And even if that was justified, you couldn't stop yourself looking at Rafinha and thinking, yeah, but he's going to have to play a part in the back end of this season. You're going to have to have big performances from him, otherwise you're not going to stay up. 
you could sense it in the crowd as well when he came off the bench, you know, as they do the announcements, so-and-so is replacing so-and-so. There's that lift. You could just hear it in the Ellen yeah. Road crowd responds to it. Yeah, you've seen that with various players over the years, players who the crowd kind of trust or, or suspect are going to be able to deliver something. And I think we'd be having a very different conversation, obviously, had Welbeck put that chance in. I think we'd probably be talking about the, more about the slight struggle to compete with Brighton. I suspect we'd probably reflected more on the position Brighton are in as a club in comparison to Leeds. I enjoyed Moscow's piece this morning where he was kind of saying with the crowd, the, probably also that slight frustration about the fact that Brighton have got themselves to that point where kind of crucially, it doesn't seem to matter at this juncture if they lose manager, director of football, technical director, whatever it is, individual players, they, they seem to know how they're going to be able to manage that. And that most certainly is not something that Leeds have done well over the past 12 months. And Brighton have a little bit ahead of Leeds, but at the same time, I suspect where they are is where a lot of people at Ellen Road would like to be too. Yeah, in terms of strategy, it feels like they've pretty much got it right one way or another, doesn't it? Yeah. Whether it lasts, whether it lasts, you know, I was talking to Andy Naylor, our Brighton writer, and, and he said, you know, I'm always wary of the possibility that despite the fact that everything seems so well built and, and you know, so well pinned together, it's amazing how quickly it can all unravel. And you're suddenly talking about a team who did have it and no longer have it, which is what I, I think you would say with Leeds. You know, they, they seem perfectly placed after that first season in the Premier League. They're absolutely not perfectly placed now. And I think a lot of what what is at Ellen Road and, and the idea that it's going to work is predicated on them managing to stick around and players developing in such a big way that they become far more influential and far more effective further down the line. That the, the kind of youthfulness of the squad develops into a very competitive side, but they feel like they're quite a way away from that. You're right, there are interesting parallels, particularly with what happened with Bielsa's leads. Like you say, we, we finished ninth with that very unique um, style of football. Nobody else really doing what we were doing in the division. And then the season after, people had worked it out. They had a data set from the first season, didn't they? So you wonder if Deserby might not perhaps get away with is not the right word, but you know, um, get away with playing this style of football next season. Will other teams have figured out a way to to beat it, to counter it? Well, that's that's the evolution of football, isn't it? And the evolution of management as well is that you don't have your own way constantly. And and even Bielsa found that that things like the man marking towards the end, um, the, the strict nature of it, was starting to cause a problem and was starting to get fairly badly exposed. I think with hindsight now, what I don't feel Leeds ever had was a, a definite or foolproof understanding of how they were going to move on from him, you know, what was going to come next. And perhaps he is, to a large degree, a, a nigh on impossible coach to follow, you know, or a, a coach to move on from. But I think we'll all reflect and have done and will do as time goes on that there probably was a, a far smoother transition in terms of choice of the next coach than, than Marsh turned out to be. Well, someone like Deserpi, for example, you saw the style of football. It is far more akin to what we were witnessing before, wasn't it? Which was playing out from the back, trying to dominate possession. Just a, a tweak on the system. Obviously, like you say, not so reliant on, on man-to-man marking, but someone like that would have been perhaps a more, a more natural successor, which does lead you back to the question of what it was that, and this is not an insult to Marsh. You know, Marsh's football has been successful in certain places and maybe successful again. But putting all that aside, it's the, it's the idea of a succession plan, isn't it? That I've got questions over as to how that possibly came to be seen as, as a as a natural pathway. It just does not make sense to me now. 
Well, I think one of the things that's been in my head about Iriola at Vicano is the fact that if you look at the Zerbian, okay, we're talking about the Zerbian complementary terms because it's working at Brighton, but you can't discount the possibility that he just is an exceptional coach and Brighton have got this bang on. And you can't forget either that it was absolutely deserving that they wanted after Potter. You know, it wasn't a case of digging around, playing the field, seeing seeing who was out there. They, they really, really did go after him. And he, you know, he did good things at, with a, a fairly smallish club in Italy or certainly not one of the bigger clubs in Italy. And and I guess if you look at Areola with Vaicano, you, you could draw comparisons in, in that sense without the football necessarily being, being identical. But I, I think Brighton have cleverly got themselves into the mindset and have made peace with the idea that if somebody's going to go and there's nothing you can do about it, then let them go, take the money and tell yourself, remind yourself always that very few projects should be built on an individual. You know, very few projects should rely or stand up or fall down on one person. I think with Bielsa, it's incredibly difficult to avoid that because of the way he runs the show and because of of what he is. And it would be totally ludicrous now to say that it shouldn't have been like that because of how how good they were for the three years. But Brighton have definitely got into the, I guess, collective mindset, haven't they? That if your technical director wants to go to Newcastle, let him go and get another one. If your manager wants to go to Chelsea, let him go and get another one. If your midfielder wants to go to Arsenal, if another midfielder wants to go to Arsenal, pick your moment, pick your time, um, as they did with Casado. But let it happen. And cash in as best as you can. And and if you've got a, a fairly clear idea of what you can do with the money and who you can recruit, then you can still be in good good neck. I think from a Leeds perspective as well, the the wisdom of going so heavy on transfers in year one in the Premier League, but then doing nothing in year two, starting to look more flawed, isn't it? Because there was a very deliberate policy decision almost to stand still in that second season and, and thinking they had enough within that squad, uh, you know, with the aid of hindsight, it's proved to be a misjudgment. And I think that the amount of recruitment this season, the numbers who've come in, tell you that that the club have realised that the, the squad needed to churn. You know, it did need to turn over and there did need to be changes. And, and surely that'll be the case again in the summer of some people coming to the end of their cycle um, of the need to need to refresh. And I think if they do stay up, what will have to happen is that the individual players in the squad are going to have to improve um, going to have to improve the sort of general level of consistency that they have because even now it's quite difficult to pick out players who've had really good seasons. When it comes to player of the year, uh, we might have said this I think on the last podcast, but Nonto is going to be right in the mix. I suspect Rodrigo has to be because of his goals. But round about that, I think something like Tyler Adams, I don't think has had a, a bad year at all. But I suspect that if you spoke to Adams, even he would say that he would have liked to, to have gone better than this. I look at that squad and I just see a team that needs a pre-season, just probably in terms of fitness, tactics, the whole shebang. Maybe it'll benefit too if if it does stay up from having, having a, a difficult year and gaining a, a little bit of experience in nous and and knowledge from that but yeah without a doubt I mean there's there's no getting away from the fact that inheriting a team mid-season is kind of difficult if you can do it you sort of want to do it at the time where the Zerbi was able to come in at Brighton um, so that you're not already you know the die isn't already cast for a relegation battle or, or whatever else even Wolves at the point where they decided to get rid of Bruno Large they were doing it with ample number of games left and and also the World Cup break coming up at a kind of window in which 
you could properly think about the team, reorganise the team, change things fairly substantially, tactically. Gracia, I think, has changed as much as he could do without being reckless about it and in trying to have a, a sensible approach. I don't think there's a, a whole lot more he could have done. And he he would say himself that in order to properly get your foot in the door with a job like this, you do need a summer. You definitely do need a pre-season, but it feels a long way away. With reference to uh, one of the Player of the Year candidates you just mentioned there, Rodrigo, should he have had a penalty in this game late on? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Looking at the replay, I mean, I, I thought first time round that Webster got the ball, then it appeared that the player coming across from the other side got the ball. Did Webster bring him down first? I don't think it was. I don't think it was. Um, I thought it was a, a fair decision. What about you? On balance, probably not, but you suspect putting on your most lunatic partisan swivel-eyed football fans head that you could imagine certain clubs in certain circumstances would have got that had a Leeds player that's a very fair point yeah had they done it to them had it been a televised I don't, game I don't think it's I, I don't think it's lunatic swivel-eyed to say that that could have gone either way um, I think that's that's fair enough I think if it's not given you can see the argument for why it isn't given but if, yeah, if you're saying to me that at a certain level or had certain teams been involved, that might have been viewed slightly differently, then the, the evidence of VAR says that, yeah, potentially it would have been. Potentially a valuable point then, do you think, on reflection, looking at that one? Uh, as time goes by, I start to think, do you know what? Not a bad point, that overall, given how good Brighton have been. I guess considering how tight it is, the, the, the critical thing at the moment is to avoid getting cut adrift. And it's very easy for that to happen. And the more you go through weekends without picking up anything, and you've seen this particularly, I think, with Southampton and Bournemouth, they've managed to stop getting stop themselves getting into a rut where they're just not taking any results. And on that basis, they are still very much in the mix, the same as everybody else. Wolves, I, I don't want to say Wolves away this weekend is critical. It's an important game, clearly, because everything's going to be important at this stage. But I do feel like it could frame quite a lot in this because it's Arsenal away after that. And it's really is going to be a, they've got one in them weekend. I was going to say, uh, for, for the benefit of you know, the listener here, um, we are chatting on Zoom right now. And you had a little twinkle yeah. twinkle in your eye, a grin on your face as you said those words. <laughs> but it would be, it would be the, the best example of it ever if Leeds were to go and win at Arsenal or kind of upset the odds down there. So, because of where Wolves are and because other teams will pick up points over these two weekends, this is probably a juncture at which there is possibly the risk of Leeds, Leeds being cut a little bit adrift. And once that happens, the pressure hikes up massively. So they, they do need to get something from Wolves this weekend. They do need to keep in touch. And at some point, they're gonna to have to they're gonna to have to start turning in the wins. They are almost at the point of probably needing a win from every two games. Not quite there yet, but it won't be long. I love teeing you up with these uh, these difficult ones. So let's close out the show on this thought then. What would you say to Leeds fans now about what's left of the season, these remaining twelve games? In what sense? Well, in the sense that if you had to give a message to Leeds fans about what's to come, what we need to do, what would you say? I feel like they need five wins from the twelve games that are left or or thereabouts. Um, which is a big ask. I suspect everybody has to prepare themselves for this being incredibly close, incredibly close for... Uh, if I was you, I probably wouldn't um, get it into my head that this is suddenly going to sprout into a run of five wins and Leeds will be safe by the beginning of April. Um, and I think I'd probably say the same to a lot of clubs who are down in a similar position. 
at the moment. This is this already has the feeling of final weekend drama, and not just for Leeds either. Well, you know, just looking at the calendar and what's left that um, that Spurs home game, it's the it's the bank holiday weekend, isn't it? Uh, and I know this because my birthday is the day after, so it could be a great weekend in one sense, or it might be an abysmal birthday in another. It's just, I, I was picking through the fixtures today because I think we're, we're going to write on this this week, you know, just about how rare this relegation fight is with the number of teams involved and, and how tight it is. And I was noticing that Forrest go to Palace on the last day of the season. So at the moment, you're talking about a side who have won once away from home and scored four goals against a side who haven't won since December the 31st. Uh, I haven't had a shot on target in the last three games. So who the hell is calling that game? You know, and, and if if both sides needed something from it, how, how on earth would you, you know, where would you put your money? Where would you put your money? I think this is going to be incredibly close. I just I just think there are a lot of teams who are going to be right in it with a couple of weeks to go. And I would say that, as we touched on earlier on, we are in the same position points-wise after the same number of games played as last year. We stayed up last year. Let's just do it again. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. We'll return towards the back end of the week, Phil. You and I will speak then. Uh, Michael will join us. Um, enjoy the rest of the week. Enjoy a stress-free week. 100%, yes. That's us done for this episode of The Phil Hayes Show. At The Phil Hayes Show on Twitter, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Speak to you soon. The Phil Hayes Show. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.